you please take your Bibles and turn to that roll call of faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're in the final stretch of our year of the Bible. We've been reading through the Bible together. I hope that you've stuck with us. Um, And the goal of this whole year has been to help us to see that the Bible really is one unified story that points us to Jesus. He is the purpose, the point, the central character, and the author of this story. The Bible is first and foremost the story of God, of who He is, of what He's doing in the world. And Hebrews chapter 11 kind of gives us a, a recap, sort of a Reader's Digest view of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. It's about how we, as people, get to participate in God's epic story. How can the story of God become our story? And as Kelly said, it's by faith. By faith, the story of God can actually become our stories as well. But first, Hebrews 11 gives us probably the most succinct definition of faith found in the Bible. It gives us the substance of faith. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was unseen, of what was visible. Have you ever heard somebody refer to Christians or refer to religious people as people of faith? You ever heard that, that phrase, people of faith? You know, well, you know, she's a, a person of faith, something like that. It's really a strange phrase when you think about it because really everyone is a person of faith. Right? I mean, every human being that, that's alive now is a person of faith because we all live our lives on the basis of faith in things we can't see. How many of you ever, when you go into your house or into a place of business, connect your smartphone to a Wi-Fi signal? You ever do that? Okay, you don't want to use up your data, do you? Right? So you connect, you look at that, those little symbols up there, and you have faith that this invisible thing is transferring between your phone and the internet, right? Can you see the internet? Can you see those cellular signals in the air? No. But we live our lives today based on the faith, maybe a little, maybe a little too much based on the faith, that that stuff is there. Everyone lives with some certainty of hope in the future, don't we? Even if it's no more than that when you go to bed at night, you believe you're going to wake up the next morning. That's faith. And verse 1 tells us here that faith is the foundation of our lives. Maybe your translation, this one says faith is being sure of. Maybe yours says it's uh, faith is the confidence. Some translations say faith is the substance. The Greek word there is hypostasis. And it means the foundation. It means the basic essence of reality. That which undergirds Everything else. In other words, it is on the foundation of faith that all of our hopes and our lives are built. Faith, really in in, in a a very real way, is trust in the future. And as we will see, these Old Testament heroes all lived with that kind of foundational trust in the future that God had promised them. And God commended them. It says in verse 2 that the ancients were commended by God. He was pleased with them because of that kind of faith. Letting that hope for God's promises undergird everything that they did. 
And as Christians today, we also trust in a future that God has promised us. The promise of eternal life, the promise of resurrection and eternity in the presence of God. We live by faith as resident aliens, as pilgrims through this world, trusting that our true destiny is in a heavenly home. But secondly, faith is also certainty. It's evidence. It's proof of what we do not see. And it gives us an example in verse 3 that no one bore witness to the creation of the universe. No one. Yet God has revealed to us His creation through what we can see with our own eyes and experience every day in God's good world, but also by His Holy Spirit through the written Word, God reveals to us His creative work. But every human being who's ever lived has believed something about where this all came from, how the world was made, where we came from, how we got here, and all of those ideas are based on faith. Even atheists who believe in evolution are exercising faith because they weren't there. They didn't observe that happen, but they trust that it happened. So, and that's a good reminder for us that faith just in some generic, is meaningless, right? I mean, we can have faith in just about anything. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. What do you put your faith and trust in? So whether someone holds a naturalistic, evolutionary explanation of our origins, or if they're holding to the biblical account that God created everything, including people, it's all a matter of faith. The question is simply, where do we place our faith? On what grounds do we believe the things that we believe? And that's the story of the Bible. It's a story about people who build their lives on the hope of God's promises, who trusted in things and truths they couldn't see, who worshiped the true and living God. But along the way in the Bible, we also see what happens to those whose faith and trust are misplaced. And that... Altogether is the story of faith, which begins here in verse 4. The faith stories of these saints can teach us how we can live our lives by faith today. So I want us to do a quick survey of the rest of this chapter and discover how by faith we must worship truthfully. In verse 4, we learn that by faith we must worship truthfully. By faith... Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. Here, the author of Hebrews gives us an answer to sort of an age-old question. One, the Old Testament and Genesis never, never give us an answer to. And that is, why was Abel's offering more acceptable to God than Cain's offering? And the answer, according to Hebrews, is because Abel showed faith by his offering. His sacrifice demonstrated obedient trust in God, while Cain, on the other hand, was holding back from God, perhaps with distrust in his heart. And that distrust that Cain had was really just the continuation of the serpent's lie that God was not good and loving. You could not trust God. You needed to look out for yourself. While Abel's offering was a response of reckless abandon to God, an act of lavish worship in spirit and in truth, which Jesus tells us in John 4 is the kind of worship God desires from all of us. Jesus said, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So the story of Cain and Abel is a reminder for us that religiousness... 
does not equal righteousness. Cain was religious. He brought his offering. But if we want to truly worship the Lord God, we must worship from a relationship with God that is built on faith and trust. And the author of Hebrews here tells us that that kind of faith-filled worship cannot be silenced even by death. And still today, Abel's demonstration of faith-inspired worship speaks to us. But in verses 5 and 6, we learn that we also must walk earnestly by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, worship is an important part of our walk with God, but it's not the only part of our spiritual walk. It also involves spiritual disciplines like prayer, and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on God's Word. It includes acts of service in Jesus' name. It includes generosity in Jesus' name. It includes sharing the gospel and making disciples. And Enoch had that kind of walk with the Lord. Remember when Enoch lived. Enoch lived in the days of Noah. Right? I mean, he's living right before the flood is when his story takes place. And we know that that was sort of the tipping point of human wickedness. Things had gotten so horribly bad, God was just going to send a flood and wipe the slate clean. Yet in that age of corruption, Enoch stood out as a man of righteousness. He showed his faith by his walk with God. Faith in a God he could not see controlled Enoch's life. And his reward was that he was immediately translated into the very presence of God without having to taste death. I think it's interesting to juxtapose Enoch and Abel here. Enoch's faithful walk resulted in never having to die. Abel's faithful worship resulted in a violent death at the hands of his brother. That's the first indication for us that the path of faith doesn't always lead to the same outcome for everyone. You know how sometimes you see those commercials for, I don't know, anti-aging cream or weight loss, and it says not all, your results may vary, you know, it says that. When it comes to the life of faith, the results may vary. Not all of us are going to experience what Enoch experienced, and thankfully we're not all going to experience what Abel experienced. You see, the story of faith is first and foremost the story of God's work to redeem a fallen, wicked, wicked world. It's not about living our best life now. Thankfully, our, our best life is not going to be now. Amen? Our best life is yet to come. The author tells us that Enoch's faith pleased God. He, he uses that as an example to point out that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And again, we get a further explanation of the nature of a faith that pleases God. Notice that first, anyone who would walk with God does so from a deep conviction that there is indeed a God. And not just any God, but a God of love and goodness. God's servants believe that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Those two convictions are the bedrock for the lives of Christians. It would be foolish to go looking for a God who does not exist, or for one, if He did exist, would punish you if you found Him. So we believe that there is a God, and we believe He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We walk earnestly by faith. We also work wholeheartedly. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in a holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he commended the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes 
by faith. Warren Wearsby points out that Noah's faith involved his whole person. His mind was warned of God's coming judgment. His heart was moved with fear and his will acted on what God had told him. Now, as an example for us in serving the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God isn't interested in half-hearted worship and service. Remember the story when Jesus spoke to some would-be disciples and He told them, if you follow Me, you may not have a place to lay your head. If you follow Me, you're going to have to forsake friends and family and not look back. In fact, Jesus went on to say in Luke 9, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's all or nothing when it comes to serving the Lord. We must work for the Lord wholeheartedly with everything we are by faith. And then next, we must wait and obey expectantly by faith. Wait and obey. The author of Hebrews next goes into the story of Abraham and his family. And this is a story of patient waiting and and obeying with great expectation. This God who doesn't always give us the details. I mean, we like to know the details, don't we? We want to read the fine print before we put our name on on that dotted line, don't we? Because we want to know what's expected of us, what's asked of us. But that's not how following Jesus works. God asks us to trust Him to go, to give, to do. But He doesn't always tell us the where's, the why's, the how's, and the when's, does He? We have questions because we only see and know in part. And that's where faith, where trust comes into play. It was precisely because He had more questions than answers that Abraham waited and obeyed by faith. And like Abraham, we must wait and obey by faith when we wonder things like, where is God leading? Look at verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham lived the life of a nomad. He lived in tents, always ready to pack it up and leave whenever God might tell him to go. Peter says that as Christians, we are no different. In his first letter, Peter says that we are foreigners and exiles in this world. He reminds us. This world is not our home. And like Abraham, we should hold on to the things of this world loosely, ready to pack it up and go whenever, wherever, and to whomever God leads. As the hymn says, one of my favorite hymns, wherever He leads, I'll go. Wherever He leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever He leads, I'll go. By faith. We wait and obey, even though we don't know exactly where we may be going. But also we ask the question, how will God work? Look at verses 11 and 12. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. You know, this is probably one of God's favorite miracles in the Bible. We see it happen time and time again, this miraculous birth. Abraham and Sarah believed God's covenant promise, but they were way beyond the age of having babies. They had tried, never could. 
So how would God fulfill this promise? That was a big question mark for them. Maybe you wonder about how God is going to answer your prayers, how He's going to get you through this season of life, how He's going to fulfill the promises in the Bible. Our life circumstances can easily cloud our faith. Remember that faith is the certainty of things unseen. And I think sometimes those things are unseen because we put our eyes too much on the circumstances that are right in front of us and they don't let us see the things that God is wanting to do. It's like Peter walking on the water. As long as he kept his focus on Jesus, he was fine. But when he took his eyes off Jesus and focused on his circumstances, he began to sink. Maybe for you, you're focusing too much on the wind and the waves, on the bills that are piling up, on that diagnosis of cancer, on the rebellious teenager, or those looming deadlines. We have to live by faith, even though we don't know how God will work. And then we have the question of when will God act? Look at verses 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Neither Abraham, Isaac, nor Jacob ever saw the complete fulfillment of God's promises. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. That is why they had to live by faith right up until they died. Dr. George Morrison, a great Scottish preacher, once said, the important thing is not what we live in, but what we look for. These men and women of faith lived in tents, but they had faith and looked for a heavenly city that awaited them. And for us, you know, we, we get, I think, a little too impatient in our prayers. We want God to act now because we're so limited by time. We, we forget that our lives are like a vapor, that, that we are no more than a blip on the radar screen of eternity. In fact, Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 3 to not forget this one thing, dear friends, he says, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. We have a very limited understanding of what slowness is, don't we? Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for that promised son to be born. The people of Israel had to endure 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then 40 years in the wilderness, but that was their own fault, before they inherited the promised land. And then centuries upon centuries upon centuries passed before the long-awaited Messiah was born. And now we today, as Christians, are waiting every day for Jesus Christ to come and to make all things new. And we wait with the prayer on our lips. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And with the Gospel in our hands, sharing the good news with as many as possible before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. God always fulfills His promises either immediately or ultimately. It is all in His time. And faith gives us the patience to wait with great expectancy. But I think the most difficult question with which we wrestle is the question, why? 
Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this to happen? Look in verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He had received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You know, I think the tests of faith become more difficult as we walk with God, yet the rewards also become more wonderful. And this test for Abraham lay in the conflict between God's promise and God's command. I mean, all of a future nation's promises were wrapped up in Isaac. So how could God command Abraham to put him to death? This was Abraham's beloved son, the son of the promise. You know, we often put ourselves into false dichotomies, into situations where we think that we have to choose between uh, believing God's promises and obeying God's commands. But that's the same falsehood that humanity has wrestled with since the Garden of Eden. It's that doubt, is God really good? Can I trust God? Does God really love me and have my best interests at heart? If He is truly all-powerful, can He truly love? And if God truly loves, can He truly be all-powerful? See, Abraham could have easily have gotten wrapped up in that crazy debate and and questioned the guidance from God, the command from God to offer Isaac. But Abraham chose to believe that God's promises could never fail, and he obeyed accordingly. And even though Abraham had no concept of resurrection, He believed and came to view that if God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac, well, then God must be willing to raise Isaac back up from the dead. And in a way, that's what happened when God provided that ram to be sacrificed in place of his son. It's as if Abraham's son had been snatched unexpectedly from death. We don't always understand why God tells us to do the things he tells us to do. We don't always understand why God allows certain things to happen in our lives. But we can trust that no matter what, God is always good and just. He is always loving and trustworthy. And He will always keep His promises. But you know, there are also some things that we do know about ourselves and about others and about God. And we must must have faith to wait and obey with great expectation because of what we also, what we do know. For example, in verses 20 to 23, we know that God has a plan for the future, for us, for our children, for our church, for the world. Look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edicts. We see here generations of faith. Men and women who were far from perfect and sometimes they failed, but they were men and women of faith. They were devoted to God. They trusted in His Word. And it's even more remarkable when you consider that these men and women didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a church. They didn't have Christian radio. They didn't have a preacher. 
They had so much stacked against them, yet they persisted in their faith. And God rewarded them. And eventually they did inherit the covenant promise of family and land and blessing. We wait and obey expectantly by faith. We also wage war spiritually by faith. As we've already seen, the life of faith is a life of struggle. And Paul defines that struggle for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. By faith, we wage war against our enemy, the devil, and he fires darts of doubt and temptation to us continuously. And Paul goes on to say that we must equip ourselves with God's armor, with faith and righteousness and prayer and salvation, with the gospel and God's word. But the most important thing I think we can do to ensure that we fight the good fight is found simply in what Jesus said as he challenged us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily, and to follow him. And the life of Moses, truly one of the greatest examples of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament, he followed this threefold call to discipleship. He denied himself. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused. He denied for himself all of the rights and privileges as a prince of Egypt so that he could serve his real family, the people of Israel. He took up his cross. Look at verses 25 through 26. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses identified with these Jewish slaves. He chose to suffer with them. And he regarded that disgrace as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Because he knew where his true treasure lied. Now, Like Moses, the Apostle Paul also gave up his rights and his privileges in order to bear the cross of Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he said, What is more, I consider everything, all of his accolades, all of his credentials. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And then finally, Moses followed him. Look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Vance Havner once said, Moses chose the imperishable, saw the invisible, and did the impossible. And that's what the author here is saying. And look where his faith took him and the people of Israel. In verses 27 and 28, we see that faith brings us out of slavery. In verse 29, we see that faith takes us through the trials. And in verses 30 and 31, we see that faith brings us into the kingdom of God. When we trust ourselves, we only get what weak human beings 
can do. But when we by faith follow Jesus Christ, we get what only God can do. And the life of Moses is proof that true biblical faith means obeying God in spite of the circumstances and in spite of the consequences. We deny ourselves. We take up our crosses daily and we follow Him. Now at this point, I echo the author of Hebrews in verse 34, in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time. (laughs) Time is short. So the last part of the story of faith is kind of where we come in. The story of the faithful in God's Word is our story as well. And so like them, the final thing I want to point out is that we must write the story of our faith personally. We must continue to write this story. And I want to point out just a few things about what our faith story must be characterized by. Our faith story must be characterized, first of all, as being kingdom-driven. Look at verse 33. Well, I'm going to start back at verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. See, in conquering kingdoms, weak people like Gideon were empowered by faith to overcome the enemy. In administering justice, Israel's leaders practiced Righteousness, which meant they were willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others, especially the widowed, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. In gaining what was promised, wavering human beings seized God's Word and lived by them. In other words, what these three things mean is that these people were seeking the kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom of God has come to overthrow the kingdoms of this world and the ways of this wicked world and to replace them with the promise of God's restorative justice. And we must seek and do no less. Is your life this morning worldly-centered or kingdom-centered? Are you seeking the kingdom of God and working toward justice and believing God's promises? But secondly, our story must be gospel-centered. Look at the end of verse 33 and the first of verse 34 there. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Here the author gives us three examples of miraculous rescues from death. We think of Daniel. We think of uh, Hezekiah. We think of Daniel's three friends. And is that not the story of the gospel that Jesus Christ comes to us when we're stuck in a flaming furnace and the Son of God Himself rescues us from death? and from sin, and from hell. Our lives should be characterized by the gospel. Our lives should stand as testimonies to the God who rescues, the God who saves. And then the rest of verse 34 tells us that our stories must also be spirit-empowered. He goes on to say, whose weakness was turned to strength, and it became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. It is only by the Spirit of God that our weakness can become strength. That we have the power to win the battles that we face. And finally, our story should be resurrection focused. I'll read the rest of the chapter here. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. 
These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Not every faithful saint is rescued from the lions or the flames. Many of God's servants had to hide out in the desert and in mountain caves. They were banished from society and had to live like animals. Many of them suffered incredible injustices and died gruesome deaths. Faith in God does not guarantee comfort in this world. But such faith does promise plentiful reward in the world that eternally matters. God never promised us that following Jesus would be easy. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. If the world persecutes me, it's going to persecute you. And then in John 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus rose from the grave and He defeated death itself. They couldn't kill Him and keep Him down. Our story is one of resurrection. This world is not all there is. And thank God, amen? Because this world is sick and it's dying and it's diseased and it's broken. But we live in the hope that someday Christ will return and make all things new. He will restore the broken and sick world to wholeness and health. He will bring life from death and we will live forever with Him. And that is where our faith looks to. It looks through the valley of shadows and to the Father's palace forevermore. Today you can know that wholeness and that healing. If your story is a story of faith in Christ, Jesus wants to rewrite your story for you today. If you would come and admit that you are lost in your sins, that you are spiritually dead and you are desperately in need of this God who rescues, who saves, who forgives, who wipes your slate clean and gives you a second chance, Jesus wants to do that for you today. If you would come in just a moment as we sing and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, by faith you can have forgiveness and life forevermore. Maybe this morning as a Christian, you're here and you're thinking, that you know, my faith story needs to be renewed. My faith is, my life has not been kingdom driven. It's not been gospel centered. I'm not living by the power of the Spirit. And I'm not looking with hope to the resurrection. Maybe this morning you need to come today and say, Jesus, forgive me and help me to live the kind of faith story that other people want to follow in my footsteps. What kind of impact and legacy are you leaving? Your family, your friends, your co-workers, and your community. However God has spoken to you as we stand and sing, would you come and respond by faith?